So as I said, often it is uh, the concern of those who are looking at covenant theology perhaps for the first time, knowing that the uh, greatest, um, perhaps most numerous groups of covenant theologians are Presbyterians or uh, Dutch Reformed or something like that, people who practice infant baptism. And so in the minds of many, there is a direct connection between covenant theology and infant baptism that one leads to the other necessarily in the minds of many people. And in fact, I was listening this afternoon to a uh, discussion on this topic, and a man was, um, a Baptist guy, was looking at covenant theology, and he was very doubtful. He was very concerned because he saw that it necessarily led to infant baptism. And so, of course, uh, he dis, uh, discarded it out of hand because of that. And so we want to take a, a look tonight at um, covenant theology as it relates to the topic of baptism. And so uh, as we do this, we're going to introduce some new terms. And uh, we've already introduced quite a few new terms in our discussion of covenant theology. These are not terms we've been used to, but uh, the ones tonight we're going to introduce, we will need to define because they're even weird to look at, okay? We, if we're talking about covenant of works, we know those three words. Uh, those words aren't weird to look at. But tonight, we're going to be talking about paedo-baptists. Paedo-baptists and credo-baptists. Can you guys see over there in the peanut gallery? <laughs> Paedo-Baptists and Credo-Baptists, they're even spelled funny, right? But these are, these are normal words, and when we break them down, you will, uh, you will see uh, what they're made of. This word here, Paedo-Baptist, may be the strangest one uh, to us, but Paedo comes from pais, the Greek word that means child or infant. And so these are those who believe in infant baptism, Paedo-Baptists. Now, sometimes you will hear uh, these referred to as Presbyterians, and in fact, Presbyterians are Paedo-Baptists, but the Paedo-Baptist uh, category is broader than Presbyterians. There are more people than just Presbyterians who are uh, Paedo-Baptists. Now, interestingly, uh, Lutherans are Paedo-Baptists, and Roman Catholics are Paedo-Baptists, but today we're talking particularly about Reformed Paedo-Baptists, and then, uh, and then Credo-Baptists, uh, Reformed Credo-Baptists that we're looking at here as well. So if Paedo-Baptist means an infant baptizer, what do you think Credo-Baptist means? What, is, what does this word look like? Creed, right? Believers. Believers' baptism, those who profess the creed, those who make a profession of faith, okay? And so this is believer's baptism. This is infant baptism, and this is believer's baptism. And commonly, this one gets shortened just to Baptist, okay? So this one doesn't really get shortened all that much. It's Pado baptist versus Baptist, right? So though Baptist is in both names, 
um, we, would, uh, we would be Baptists because we believe in believer's baptism. We don't, uh, we don't baptize infants. We baptize those who have made a credible profession of faith, okay? So those are, those are the terms. Don't let them trip, trip you up. Um, Credo Baptist even has the sound creed in it, so it kind of tips us off there of what that means. Uh, Pedo-Baptist may be a little bit unusual, but it's the other one, right? It's the, those who baptize infants, okay? And so um, there are many more groups of Pedo-Baptists uh, than there are Reformed Baptists. Really, if you think about the Reformed world, if we don't break it down too small, as I said, you've got Dutch Reformed who are Pedo-Baptistic. You've got Presbyterians who are Pedo-Baptistic. And then when you look at the Baptist side, at least among Reformed Baptists, you've just got the Reformed Baptists who believe in uh, credo-baptism. So those are the definitions. Those are the words um, that we will throw around. I will often just refer to this as Baptistic uh, as a short version rather than credo-baptistic. But now that we've got our definitions aside, there, there are also differences in the way and in the, in the mode of baptism. That's not really our point uh, tonight. We want to look at who is the subject, who ought to be the subject of baptism. Should it be a believer and a believer only, or should it be uh, new believers and the, the infant children of believers, as in the Pado-Baptist view? Well, that raises the question for us, why do these differences exist? Why do these differences exist? And there are a lot of uh, answers to that. Probably in our background, as we think about why we believe in believer's baptism, it's relatively straightforward, relatively simple, that uh, we read in the New Testament that we are to go and make disciples and baptize them. So you make a disciple by leading someone to Christ, and then you baptize them. The example that we see in uh, for example, in the day of Pentecost, the gospel was proclaimed. A large number came forward. They repented and believed and were baptized as a result of their profession of faith. And so there were added uh, to the church that day uh, about 3,000 souls, right? So for our position where we come from, not having a background of covenant theology, not having a background where we've dealt much with this, I've, I've never been a Pado-Baptist. Maybe some of you have. Um, and, and even in the, in the Reformed world, like I'm not just referring to the idea that you were, um, uh, you know, you were raised Roman Catholic or something like that, but even, even in your Christian life, perhaps you've had some sort of background. Uh, you went to a Presbyterian church uh, somewhere or, or whatnot. But for us, in our background, we, are, uh, we believe in credo-baptism, because that's uh, what we see presented in the New Testament. Relatively straightforward. Relatively straightforward for us. And so when we look at the, the uh, Pado-Baptist, we uh, wonder where they ever come up with it. You can scrounge through the New Testament, and you're not going to see instruction to baptize your infants. In fact, there's a a great debate that is available uh, on YouTube, and it's between R.C. Sproul and uh, John MacArthur on the topic of baptism, because R.C. Sproul, who was a Presbyterian, uh, a Pado-Baptist, and then John MacArthur, who is credo-baptistic, and they were having a debate on this topic. 
And R.C. gets up, and in his uh, opening speech, he says, Now I will grant you that you will not find a verse or a passage in the New Testament that commands us to baptize our infants. But then he makes his argument. And so John MacArthur gets up and he says, you said at the very beginning that you're not going to find a verse or a passage in the New Testament that explicitly tells us to baptize our children. So why are we debating? (laughs) Right? We kind of see things uh, the way MacArthur sees them in in that regard. But coming from uh, the background of paedobaptism, their, their argument isn't so much uh, that a particular verse in the New Testament says we should baptize our infants. Their argument comes from their understanding of covenant theology, right? So to be reformed in part means to believe in covenant theology, and to be a reformed paedobaptist means that you believe a particular kind of covenant theology that is paedobaptistic that leads you to the conclusion when you understand the theology that way and you come to the New Testament with that understanding in mind, things fit into place in such a way that you say, well, clearly infants in the New Covenant should be baptized just like infants in the Old Covenant were circumcised. So their, their covenant theology leads them to uh, that point. So that's where they come from. The Baptist, like MacArthur, uh, and, and we, I mean, for most of our backgrounds, we, we would say, well, if you don't find a verse that tells you to do it, what are you doing doing it? <laughs> and requiring it, right? Um, they, they have their reasons. We will examine their reasons. And again, I've not ever been a paedobaptist, and so I, I will try to do my, my best to represent their position, though, um, you know, just know that I, I, I'll, I'm, I'm biased. <laughs> uh, I'm biased. But I will do my best to, uh, to, to present it. Uh, the, the arguments uh, as they exist, but understand my own bias in this, right? The essence of their covenant theology understanding that leads them to think that we ought to baptize infants in the new covenant comes down to their understanding of the relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant. The relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant. So we, uh, we talked about the explicit covenants listed in Scripture, right? And the first explicit one that, that we talked about was the Noahic covenant and then the Abrahamic covenant, right? And in, in the Abrahamic covenant, in the Abrahamic covenant, you have uh, the sign of the covenant given, and that sign is circumcision. And so Abraham and his sons are to take on circumcision and all of his servants immediately, right? They're to, be, they're to be circumcised as infants. And then after the Abrahamic covenant, you have the Mosaic, right? And in the Mosaic covenant, it takes that, uh, that sign of circumcision. The, the circumcision is not the sign of the Mosaic covenant, but, but often these two get read together. One is the extension, is an extension of the other. And so... Uh, what is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant? Technically, it's the Sabbath, but it brings with it the expectation of the circumcision of infant boys. Okay, so it brings it with it. And so, after that, you have the Davidic, 
which we don't really need to discuss in this regard, but what's the last explicit covenant in the Old Testament that we talked about? The new covenant, right? Okay, Jeremiah 31. So you've got, uh, these, these are the, the explicit covenants in the Old Testament. Now I'm saying explicit because I'm, I'm not referencing uh, the covenant of works uh, between, between God and Adam. I'm not referencing the covenant of grace necessarily, though we will talk about that in a moment, right? But for the Paedobaptists, when they look at their covenant theology and they see the connection between Really, we could, we could shorten this. We could, another name for this is the Old Covenant as opposed to the New Covenant, right? So you see those two going on there, the relationship between those two. Now, the Paedobaptist understanding of the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is very interesting and leads to the conclusions that they draw. That in their mind, in Paedobaptistic covenant theology, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are at their heart one covenant that's administered in two different ways. But at its heart, it's one covenant ministered in two different ways. That is, the Old Covenant is seen as an administration of the covenant of grace, and the new covenant is seen as an administration of the covenant of grace. Remind me again, what is the covenant of grace? It's between God and the elect, or more specifically, God and Christ and the elect who are in them, right? That Jesus does the work, Christ does the work of the covenant of works and gives us the benefit of it, right? so that He earns life and gives it to us. He pays the penalty for the failure of, uh, to keep the covenant of works, and He gives us the benefit of our sins being washed away, right? That's the covenant of grace. That's the promise of eternal life, right? That the, the Messiah is going to accomplish this, that the Son of God is going to do this, that He's going to be the one who will fulfill the covenant of works on our behalf and give us the credit and the benefit and the blessings of it, all right? That's the covenant of grace. Now, we can certainly see when we look at the new covenant. Why don't we open our Bibles to Jeremiah 31? This is one of those passages in the Bible that you need to know when someone asks, where's the new covenant? You need to know that, Jeremiah 31, 31 and following. You need to know it right off the top of your head. This is a very, very important one, right? So here we are, Jeremiah is prophesying. Uh, the people are going into exile, and uh, they have broken uh, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Um, they were told, do this and live, or if you, if you keep these rules, then you will, uh, these laws, then you will have these certain benefits, including staying in the land. And they had repeatedly and, and in terrible fashion broken those commands, and so they are being kicked out of the land. And at that very moment, the prophet Jeremiah receives this word in 3131 of Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Mosaic covenant. 
not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So when we read that, we see that that is basically an explanation of the covenant of grace. That promised eternal life that's been accomplished for us, that's been given to us. That we've been brought into that relationship where we receive eternal life is based upon these words. There's, there's not a better uh, passage to identify the covenant of grace being spelled out. It's, it's right here for us. What He is going to do for us, it's called the new covenant, right? So we can say this is a very clear expression. The new covenant is a very clear expression of the covenant of grace. Okay, I think, I think uh, all Christians would, would, would agree with that. Where there's a difference, and the point of this difference right here is that in paedobaptistic covenant theology, they look at the old covenant also as an administration of the covenant of grace. You see, in their mind, there is great continuity between old covenant and new covenant. That it's, it's, it's one covenant, but in the old in the old order, it's being administered a particular way. It looks different on the outside, but at its heart, it's the same covenant as is administered in the new covenant, in the new era, though it looks different, but it at its heart is the same covenant. Okay? That's the way they see it, so that they see that there is actually only one covenant of grace. It's administered in these two different ways. These are actually very closely related, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant to one another. And so they see that there is one covenant, though it's administered differently. So when they're looking at Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, they see that's an administration of the covenant of grace, as is uh, the New Covenant, though the New Covenant uh, is fuller. um, It's a better form, it's better promises, and it's final. Right? So you have, you have that difference, but nevertheless, at its heart, they're very similar. So how, how do we understand this? I think a, a helpful illustration would be to think of an acorn. And you plant an acorn in the ground, and that acorn sprouts and it grows and it's putting down roots, and it, it looks different at different stages before it turns into the oak tree. But it was the same oak tree when it was this tall as when it had two leaves sticking out of the ground, as when it's 40 feet tall. It's the same oak tree, okay? That's, that's uh, uh, the way they understand the relationship between these two, that it's essentially one oak tree, though it has flowered and blossomed and grown and become much larger and better in the new covenant, okay? That's how they understand the relationship between those covenants. Now, Baptist covenant theology sees this very differently. Baptist covenant theology uh, 
looks at the Old Covenant and the New Covenant not as being one covenant differently, differently administered, but as two separate and very different covenants. In Baptist thinking, the Old Covenant is essentially the covenant of works republished, right? The covenant of works. Remember the essence of the covenant of works? God said to Adam, basically, do this and live. That's the essence of the covenant of works. What do we read uh, in the law? You open up Moses, you read the law, and you see command after command after command after command summarized in Leviticus 18.5. Would someone open to Leviticus 18.5 and read that for us? And tell me if it sounds a little bit like the language of the covenant of works. Read this in the sermon this morning, or a, a passage nearby anyway. If a person does them, he shall live by them. This is the essence of law. Do this and live. So in the, the mind of the Baptist covenant theologian, we are not looking at one covenant administered in two different ways. We are looking at two separate covenants. That this, the mosaic, is essentially a republication of the covenant of works. Now, I say essentially because there are elements found within the Mosaic Covenant that, that point forward to the Messiah, that point forward to the New Covenant. There are elements within that Old Covenant that promise what is to come, that, that give us hints. Like you think about the feasts, the feasts have meaning that find their significance in Christ. They point forward. The feasts were to, to, to ha help the people look forward. Same with the sacrifices. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Or the dietary laws. Those are, those are symbolic. They're pointing forward to Christ. They're giving hints. They're giving promises. The cleanliness laws point forward to Christ. All of these things are pointing forward to Christ. There are elements that promise the new covenant, but itself the old covenant is basically do this and live. Okay? It's a republication not of, uh, not of the covenant of grace, but of the covenant of works in the Baptistic understanding. And when we come to the new covenant, and you read Jeremiah 31, that is nothing but the covenant of grace written on the page, right? So you see, for the Baptist, there is a great difference. For the Paedobaptist, there's a close connection between those two. For the Baptist, there is a great difference. Therein lies the difficulty. How closely do we see those things related together? That's why a paedobaptist will come up with baptizing their infants, and that's why a credo-baptist comes up with, no, we ought to baptize only believers. And here's how that logic works. If with the paedobaptist we see that the Mosaic Covenant is the acorn, 
The new covenant is essentially a tree in full flower and strength. It's one covenant with two administrations. If we see those that closely connected together, then we should also see that kind of a connection between the signs of the covenant administered here, the sign of the covenant administered here, and the sign of the covenant administered here. You see? Because it's one, the way they see it, it is one covenant showing itself in two different times, in two different ways. And so since there is great unity, this is one covenant in their thinking, we ought to understand the sign of this administration of the covenant of grace to be similar to the sign of this administration of the covenant of grace right there. And when you look at the Mosaic covenant, you look at the old covenant, who is it who receives the sign? First of all, what is the sign of the covenant for the, as we've talked about? Circumcision, right? Who receives it? Boys, infant boys, right? So the children of the Israelites would receive the sign of that covenant. There was no faith present of this infant. Uh, this is, this is a, just a newborn baby who receives that sign. And when he receives that sign, he's included into that covenant community. He has shown himself to be a true Israelite, an Israelite who didn't need to be run off because he wasn't circumcised. He's included in that group, right? And so, in their thinking, since this is how the sign is administered, this is, these are the people to whom the sign is administered under the Mosaic covenant. When we come to the new covenant, remember, in their thinking, this is, this is one covenant, two administrations. So this is just, just a bigger version, a more mature version of, of that acorn. What is the sign of the new covenant? Baptism. To whom ought it to be uh, administered? In their thinking, if, if the covenant is the same, it should be the same recipients. Because, so the question is, why do they baptize girls? And that, that's, a, that's a good question. The answer is because the new covenant is fuller and better. So girls get to be included as well, right? And so girls weren't excluded from the old covenant, but they were excluded from that sign, right? But that's, that's, I think that's the answer that they would give. But that is a good question. So, in their thinking, since there is great continuity between these two covenants... There ought to be great continuity in the sign that's administered. Yes, it's a new sign. The new covenant has a new sign that is uh, not circumcision. It's baptism in the new covenant, but it ought to be administered in the same way. And here's, catch this in, in their thinking. Since there is such great continuity and since it's so clear in the Old Testament that circumcision, the sign of the covenant, is to be given. I mean, you think about um, the punishment for those who didn't circumcise their children. You think about even when uh, Moses shows up and he's not circumcised Gershom, the angel comes to kill him. This is a big deal, right? It's important. 
And so there's very strong emphasis put in the Old Covenant on the fact that you need to circumcise your children. You need to circumcise them uh, so that they can be included in the covenant. That's such a part of the DNA that when you go into a new administration of the same covenant, in their thinking, it is such a part of their DNA that they're going to take the covenant sign, which is no longer circumcision, but it is baptism, and they're going to apply it, administer it in the same exact way. Unless there is an explicit passage of Scripture telling us to stop giving that sign to infants. Right? So that's how uh, I believe the, the Paedo-Baptist sees that continuity. So when they look in the New Testament and they don't see a verse that says, hey, you should, uh, believers should baptize their infants. doesn't bother them at all because the, 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 the die has already been cast. The habit has already been formed. They already know how this is to be done and this is just the new administration of the same thing, and so we're going to administer it the same way. Until we're told to stop, and Scripture never says, hey, don't baptize your infants. So therefore, uh, they feel fully justified in doing so. Okay? So in their thinking, and there's, there's a lot that goes into this. If you think about the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, this is forming the laws of a nation. And involvement into the nation, inclusion into the membership, the, the citizenship of the nation was by this means. You had to uh, be circumcised and your children circumcised. If you moved in from a neighboring country, if you moved in from Babylon and, and you decided you wanted to become a worshiper of Yahweh, you yourself would undergo circumcision to be a part of this group. With that way of thinking, since... In the Paedo-Baptist mind, there's a very, very close connection between these two covenants. Actually, one covenant just administered differently. The way you enter the covenant community is by the same means. That's how you're brought into the church fellowship, as it were. Okay? And so that's how they see that. Sure. Yeah. Is it anywhere in Scripture where there, that it says stop circumcising your, your infant babies? Does it say anywhere in Scripture to stop circumcising your infant babies? Um, it, it, it doesn't command you to stop, no. But if you think about, you think about the Galatians controversy, um, uh, particularly, Paul dealt with this stuff a lot. And in Colossians, he dealt with it as well. You see that he's, he's pointing out to them that that old covenant is done away. That old covenant sign is done away, and so it does you no spiritual good to circumcise your infant. So if it's been done away, why would you want to put something else in its place, which is the infant baptism? Well, in, in their thinking, we're, we're in, a, in a new expression of that covenant, and therefore it's no longer circumcision. Paul made that clear, but now it's baptism, but, but administered the same way. I'm, I'm not going to disagree. <laughs> I'm not going to disagree. And here's where it would be better to have a, a paedo-baptist defending their own position because I'm going to cave because uh, I, I agree. I agree, essentially. 
right? I'm just trying to help you understand the thinking that has led to or the thinking that supports the practice of infant baptism, right? So that's the, that's the understanding from the paedo-baptist mindset. What about the baptistic mindset? Ba- Baptist covenant theology, when looking at the old covenant and the new covenant, does not see them as one covenant differently administered. As I said already, the Baptist sees this is essentially a republication of the covenant of works, whereas this is the covenant of grace. They're vastly different. Yes, there are elements within the old covenant that point forward, that give promise to the new covenant, that give promise to the covenant of grace, but it itself is not bringing about the administration of the covenant of grace. There is a a stark difference between the two. And since these are different covenants in the mind of the Baptist, since they are vastly different, it's not one, one acorn growing into the tree, you would expect this new covenant to spell out the criteria and the instructions for how its sign is to be administered. You don't carry over the instructions from the old one and apply it to the new one. You look to the new one for its instructions on how its sign is to be administered and to whom its sign is to be administered. Now, it's interesting... That seems like, uh, seems to me like it, that, that seems pretty obvious, and it seems like surely they would have a really good answer for that. But, but listen to this from B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield, who uh, was a great Princeton theologian and himself a Pato Baptist and a, a strong, strong defender of it, he writes It is true that there is no express command to baptize infants in the New Testament no express record of baptism of infants, and no passages so stringently imply it that we must infer from them that infants were baptized. When, even when he looked to the New Testament in trying to defend his position, when looking to the New Covenant expression, the New Testament, for what are the instructions for how this new sign ought to be administered, he said, well, there is no evidence in the New Testament that demands that carryover. But this argument in his mind is so strong and so clear that it carries the day. That actually to figure out who ought to be the recipients of the sign of the new covenant instituted in Jesus' blood, the way we ought to resolve that to figure out who ought to receive that sign is to look to the Old Testament which doesn't work in my mind. But that's the nature of the thinking. And in their thinking, the rest of that theology carries the day on that. Yes? Yeah. Why 
why would it be in so you're saying that um, for an old uh, a person a, a Jew Old Testament Jew Old Covenant Jew who comes to faith in Christ thinking about the concept of baptism would it be wrong for him to administer baptism to his infant because of this uh, strong uh, precedent Right. And they have been doing it out of worship. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they've been doing it um, uh, genuinely, right? They've been doing it out of obedience, worship, etc. And why, why is it so incorrect yes. for them to continue? So you are the perfect segue. That question is the perfect segue. The question is why would it be wrong for them to do that? This old covenant believer comes to faith in Christ and wants to baptize now their infants? Excellent, excellent question. Why would that be wrong? The answer to that question is the answer to this question. Who ought to be included? Who, who is included in the new covenant? Are you sure? Believers. The answer that, that you've said is believers, and so from that, we're going to examine that. I'm not questioning. I'm just, we're going to look at that. But from that, if it is believers who are included in the new covenant, then question two, who should receive the sign of that covenant? Believers, right? And so we open up our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Now, this is going to sound very familiar, <laughs> very familiar, Why would it not be right to baptize your infant children along this model? Why would it not be right for that old covenant Jew who becomes a new covenant believer to turn around and baptize his infants, thinking, well, they were circumcised, or I would have circumcised them had I remained under the old covenant, but now I'm under the new covenant, so I should baptize them. Why, uh, why should uh, that be wrong? Well, we look at this new covenant as spelled out, and again, I said it looks very familiar because it's a direct quotation from Jeremiah 31, but here we have the argument in Hebrews explaining all the way through why Christ is better and why would anyone ever go back to the Old Covenant? Start reading in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the Old, as the covenant He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. What covenant does He mediate? The New Covenant. He mediates the New Covenant. And so it's talking about his ministry, his priesthood is superior, uh, is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So there, was, there were problems. It had fault in the words of the author. 
Verse 8, for he finds fault with them when he says, quoting from Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, Mosaic covenant, established in the wilderness when they had been brought out of Egypt. They were about to be taken into the land. When they were being formed as a nation, they were being given their laws. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. They broke that covenant, and they received the curses for it, being sent into exile bearing the penalties for having broken that covenant. And he's saying this new one that I will establish will not be like that one. Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall, here's the key, and here's, here's the key. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Who within the new covenant knows the Lord? Everybody within the new covenant knows the Lord. Part of what it means to be in the new covenant is to know the Lord, to be a believer. I'll read it again, verse 11. They shall not teach. Now, imagine if the new covenant community consisted of believers and their baptized infants. That's the new covenant community. That is what it means to be in the new covenant. The believer and their baptized infants or, or small children, right? They shall not teach those who are within the covenant, shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. That paradigm of your, of your infants being included in the new covenant doesn't work because you, parents, must teach your children to know the Lord. They need to come to know the Lord. They need to come to faith or they will not be included in the new covenant. Because by definition, what it means to be included in the new covenant is to have faith in Christ, to know the Lord. And thus, who ought to receive the sign of the new covenant? Baptism? Those who know the Lord. So this goes back to the question that you asked. Who ought to receive the sign of this covenant? <clears throat> there are those, I'm sure there are many, 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 who have, who have given the sign of baptism, the, the, the new covenant sign, they've given it to their infant children out of faith and out of uh, desire to worship and out of uh, obedience to all that they know. But ultimately, I, I believe it's, it's out of error as well because that infant is not yet a member of the new covenant because he does not yet know the Lord. He must be taught to know the Lord. I'll read verse 11 one more time. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. You see how he, he, 
They shall all know me. He, he said, no one's going to have to teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord. Why? Because they shall all know me. Okay, what does all mean? Well, from the least of them to the greatest. He spells it out very, very specifically what it means to be in the new covenant. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And then the author concludes in verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That's why, that's why as Baptists, we baptize believers. That is why we don't baptize infants. There are uh, a, a lot more things to say on this. Um, I'm only 50 or so pages into this book, The Fatal Flaw, um, by Jeffrey D. Johnson. But it is, um, it's very instructive on this topic particularly. He's looking at the covenant theology behind infant baptism and examining it. And, uh, and he's, he's saying, this is the flaw. This is that flaw that the members of the Mosaic Covenant are different than the members of the New Covenant, that the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, is a different covenant than is the New Covenant, that the Mosaic Covenant itself is not an administration of the covenant of grace. It doesn't administer grace. It points to grace. It promises grace. It, it encourages us to look forward to the grace that's coming in the New Covenant, but it does not itself give it to us itself it is a covenant of law that says do this and live. And so um, he argues that that's the, that's the fatal flaw of this, this uh, doctrine, the, the theology behind uh, pedobaptism. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the question is about a parent who has lost uh, an infant or a child and in regard to their faith, in regard to their eternal status, because, um, because we don't believe in infant baptism. First of all, the vast majority of paedobaptists, at least, at least Reformed paedobaptists, don't believe, that, don't believe in infant, uh, in, in baptismal regeneration. That, that baptism didn't make that person become a Christian. The, the way it's being defined is, is different, that when, when they're baptized, they enter the covenant community, and thus they receive the graces of uh, the Word being proclaimed and being raised in the church and all those kinds of things, but it does not guarantee their salvation. It's, it's an inclusion into, into the church, so it doesn't really, the difference is not that great if there's any difference uh, for most paedobaptists in answering that question. Uh, and, and the question of uh, what about infants who, or, uh, or small children who die uh, without ever, ever having come to faith in Christ, or perhaps those that are, who are so um, mentally uh, uh, affected that they're not able to understand the basic elements of the gospel, etc. That's its own question. It's a very difficult question. Um, and, and the Bible um, doesn't say a lot about it. But for, uh, perhaps for a Roman Catholic, perhaps for a Lutheran, Pedo baptism would give much more hope, but for the Reformed 
Paedo-Baptists, there's, there's less of that there because they still see um, that that baptism did not save, did not create new life in that child. Um, though there are certain, um, there is certain encouragement that a, a Presbyterian, for example, would take from, from their, their child who, who passed away having been baptized. Um, but that's a difficult question. It's kind of its own question on this topic. And you asked it right at, right at the end of the time, so. All right, so um, that's, I mean, so that's ridiculously quick in one se- session to go through and talk about this topic. But I hope you get the, I hope you get the, the boundaries or you get the basic um, uh, topics of discussion, basic points of disagreement, and basic argumentation. Um, and that's going to have to be good enough for tonight, all right? So, in short, though, what, what I started with is what I want to finish with, that, that often people think, well, covenant theology is a, is a way to sneak in infant baptism, because aren't all covenant theologians infant baptizers? No. No, they're not. And I think the stronger covenant theology, I think the, the better theological presentation is actually on the baptistic side. That, uh, that we will continue to examine as we're looking at, uh, at covenant theology. But I think, I think um, if in your mind thinking or hearing or talking about covenant theology is a little scary because you think, well, when are they going to sneak it in on us that now we're going to have a little laver over in the corner and we're going to start sprinkling babies? We're, we're not going to do that because I think the theology goes away from that. I think Scripture would, uh, would not have us do that for the reasons that we've stated. Thank you for your patience, and I know we've, this is probably not the topic that you uh, normally would, uh, uh, would think about, but it's a very important one, and particularly in our discussion of covenant theology. So let's, uh, let me pray for us, and we'll be finished. Father, we are grateful that you have spoken to us in your Word, and, and uh, that we have uh, your in, inerrant, inspired Word we get to hold in our hand, we get to read in our language. Thank you that you've given us this great salvation. Father, we, we rejoice and praise you for the new life that we have in Christ, for the peace with you that we have in him, for the hope of eternity that we have because of what Christ has accomplished. And Father, we ask as we uh, wrestle with aspects of this salvation, um, this covenant and the sign that goes with it, as we try to understand better what our uh, Presbyterian brothers uh, teach on this topic and other Pado baptists um, yet we want to see what your word says. We want to be persuaded by what your word would have us be persuaded by. We want a practice that is in line with what you command us to do and not just in line with tradition, not just in line with something perhaps we've grown up with or anything like that. So we need your help because uh, we are um, often short-sighted we have our own traditions. We have our own hang-ups. But we want to examine Your Word and think well, and we pray that You would uh, train us, renew us, that You would uh, train us in Your Word by Your Spirit, even all the way down to our hearts. Father, we are so grateful for this new covenant. We are so grateful that we have not been told, do this and live, because we know that we would not do that and we would die. But Christ has done that, and so we get to live. 
And so we rejoice in Christ our Savior, and we pray in His name. Amen.